welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I'm one of your hosts, Reagan Kelly, and I'm joined by all my awesome co-hosts this week, Laura Nash, newly married. How is the married life treating you, Laura Nash? I take a couple days off to recover. Should have taken the whole week off, but I'm glad to be back talking about video games. Thank you so much for uh, for taking time away from your uh, beautiful Polynesian... Um, uh, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I'm talking that, about one of those trips you take after your wedding. There's a word for this. Excuse me. Of... Honeymoon. Thank you. I was going to make a. I was trying to make a joke, Shane, that you ruined with your vile. Much better joke. Oh, excuse me. Uh, anyway, Laura, thank you for taking time away from from your newly wedded life uh, to join us for the show. It is literally the rest of my life, so it's not really a hassle. <laughs> yep. And uh, and Shane, how are you doing? Shane, my bro host and twin brother, how are you doing, Shane? I'm doing great. I've been married for a few years, and so you know you should thank me as well uh, for uh, yes. taking time away. <laughs> Here it is. Uh, it is Mother's Day, so uh, let's celebrate all the mothers out there. We're recording now on Mother's Day, so shout out to all the moms. Indeed. I bet we have a lot of moms that listen to this show. Hello, moms. If not, tell your mom right now. Yeah. <laughs> Text your mom right now and tell her to listen to the short game. It's the and best tell her to play games from Giant Sparrow, such as Edith Finch. Maybe not this game on Mother's Day, though. Yeah. This <laughs> Maybe might not. not. Oh, good this point. Is, this is our Mother's Day special in which we're playing a game... That is about dead children. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and before we dig in, one last thank you for joining me, Nate Heininger. How are you doing, Nate? You don't. If we're if the conversation has moved to dead children already, you don't <laughs> have to segue into introducing me next time. Just to I, let you know. Uh, yeah, it goes without it's, saying. It's, it's, it's vitally important, Nate, that everyone be introduced at the top. You're a vital contributor, Nate. I'm. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, and. Shout out to uh, Laura, who threw a awesome party in Chicago for all of us to come and celebrate her wedding. That was a super blast, and we had a great time. It First was. time everyone on the podcast was in the same place. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We actually all had to arrive in separate cars; otherwise, uh, there you know they they wouldn't allow us to be uh, to travel together, basically, because you know if, if something were to happen. Um, oh yeah, I know. mean that's just part of the iTunes. Uh, contract that she signed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, but we all made it. We are uh, uh, the the Secret Service protected us uh, sufficiently, and uh, here we are to do our first one hundred percent married podcast. Uh, coming about... to you live from our Mar-a-Lago estate, <laughs> and we're talking about a game that we've been actually looking forward to doing on this show for at least like two years now. And um, we probably would have had this episode out a bit sooner were it not for the the wedding. So fo- folks who know this show have probably been uh, hotly anticipating uh, us talking about Giant Sparrows, What Remains of Edith Finch. Um, and that's what we're talking about today. Their uh, Giant Sparrows first game, uh, The Unfinished Swan, is a favorite of our show. And it's been quite some time since that game came out in this game so the the hype machine has been long running and i know we were uh, definitely excited for this to finally arrive i think we have like six episodes where we just say made the joke whatever happened to what remains of you because <laughs> yeah. we were waiting for it for so long yeah we covered uh, unfinished swan at least a year ago and it was not a new game then i think it came out in 2003 Maybe nope, 2012. came out 2012 oh, originally. I, I said 20, 2003, I meant 2013. 2013, but, actually, but yeah. 
20 looks like 2012 on uh on the ps3 and later on the ps4 and vita Mm -hmm. it was a free game on uh, ps plus which is where i first picked it up and uh for me the unfinished swan was a totally new kind of game really i mean it it kind of followed the um kind of walking simulator genre that we've discussed so much on this show. I don't show know. And it wasn't so close to that as like, I mean, it felt like a shooter that yeah, was it, telling a story with bullets. Like it was a st- bullets being like <laughs> very loosely defined as blobs of little paint. Purely unique. It was, it was truly unique. And I have not seen anything else like it. Oh, it's, it's funny because I hadn't played Unfinished Swan, but I saw a demo of it because I knew people at Digipen via kind of video game college in Seattle. So I'd seen kind of the demo of, hey, these are my friends. They're playing with like the idea of paint swatches revealing where you are in the world. And that's all I got. <laughs> so I saw that demo. And then years later, when Unfinished Swan came out, I was like, oh, good. They made something out of it. And then I realized it was actually a popular game. And I felt really dumb for not like affixing myself to their game studio and (laughs) writing their coattails up into the stars. Ah, what might have been. But but actually, what seems kind of interesting about the timing here is that that came out not long before Gone Home came out. Uh, So uh, The Unfinished Swan, Shane said that it was a walking simulator, and certainly it has some elements that but really, if you kind of think of the walking simulator as an actual genre, and again, every time we mention this phrase, we have to say this is something that started out as a pejorative, but now it really just sort of makes sense as a description. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's a it's a it's a terrible it, name. There's not a better name for this sense. stuff. We could we There's, could be using we could be saying you know uh, first person narrative exploration games or something like that. But you know whatever. Um, you can kind of trace all of that storytelling game exactly to the explosion of that style after the incredible artistic and and um uh and sort of critical success of gone home which came out just a little later in august 2013 Mm -hmm. um so it's pretty obvious that what remains of edith finch is giant sparrow and the you know talented artists and creators there kind of responding to this these new ideas and trying to bring something new to the table uh of this sort of rapidly expanding sort of area of first person narrative games. Um, so what remains of Edith Finch is a PlayStation four and, and I guess a PC game. Uh, and it's first person narrative storytelling exploration style, uh, game in the vein of gone home, but it brings some really clever, interesting new stuff to the table that we haven't seen in this type of game before. And there are some places where it really succeeds and other places where maybe it doesn't quite, but that's what we're going to be talking about today. Just, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, what is so cool and interesting about this, this, uh, this game. Yeah, in uh, in true walking simulator fashion, I mean, it is first person and you have one button, which is basically, you know, action or activate or whatever. You know, there, if there's an item that can be um, maneuvered, you are that is your only action. You're not picking up and putting down items or anything like that. You are just walking to hot spots and activating them. Um, 
and letting the story happen. If you look at this game on its surface, you could easily think that it has, you know, it, that it's almost a clone of Gone Home. You know, you are a teenage girl returning home to a house that you haven't been to in a while. You're not a teenage girl. You're a girl in her 20s. So it's no, huge, she's huge difference. 17. She's 17, Shane. Really? Uh, I thought she was in her 20. Never mind. It okay. specifically says, yeah, it specifically it, it, says it, she's 17 at one it. point. I see why you would think that. Yeah, she's 17. Yeah, there there are some spoilery reasons that uh, you might you might imagine her age up a bit that we'll talk about later. Um, but she's returning home to a house that she hasn't lived in since she was 11. And uh, it's very strange. And you're sort of discovering or rediscovering the story of your family, the family that used to live in this house, uh, going back multiple generations, at least four generations. A bit about the storytelling as you explore. Uh, the, the story is told in a very kind of, it's all first person, very much in the style of a journal. And the beautiful voice acting and narration is accompanied by on-screen text that seems to kind of hover in the air and sometimes interact with the world around you in unexpected ways. And I feel like we're kind of burying the lead here. What really sets this game apart from other games in this style is that where in Gone Home, you're exploring a house and picking up objects, and most of those objects have a story or something to tell you about the larger story of your family. You know, you're picking up a, a diary or a book or a video game cartridge or, uh, you know, whatever random crap you found in the Gone Home house, and some of that had explicit text or whatever along with it. In this game, in a lot of those cases, you're picking up objects that literally transport you into a separate gameplay experience, almost sort of like little video game flashbacks. Yes. Um, and so ultimately, this, the house that you're exploring serves as kind of a framing device to bring you into these little uh, little short stories. You know, in, in a way, this is more like a collection of really cleverly told short stories, uh, each with their own uh, kind of, each with their own ideas and Genre, uh, I'd say. And genre, too. yeah, and and different uh, different gameplay styles, um, and so it's it's almost it almost feels like a, a collection of cool shorts that could have been tied together just by a narrative by a menu, but instead they're all different things that you find around a house, mm -hmm. and it's the focus of the game. Though that being said, um, exploring the house, which is the frame, uh, is very interesting itself. Um, the, the architecture of this house is really, really interesting. And you spend a lot of time traversing through this house, finding, um, little, uh, you know, secret compartments and secret tunnels. And, um, uh, it's, it's built into the story why this house exists like it is. But, um, even though it is the frame, it's still pretty interesting in and of itself. And I should say before we d dig too much farther that we're going to have a spoiler break and it's probably going to be a relatively early spoiler break here because we're going to be talking through some of the different stories. Um, but um, we're going to we're going to be kind of dancing around some stuff that is uh, revealed about the family later on. Um, what I think is totally OK to reveal right off the bat, um, you know, it's in the marketing is that uh, that. The main character, Edith Finch, she's a teenage girl. She's returning home to her family house that is full of sort of artifacts of her dead family members. Everyone in her family has died, most of them in very colorful ways. And, <laughs> um, uh, and, it's, and it's sort of a family curse. 
Yeah, and when we say that it's revealed right up front, I mean, it's so revealed right up front that it's literally the pause menu is the family tree with everyone's death date. So it's no secret how many people in the family are there, who died. It's not like... That's not the mystery here. And and it's you're returning home uh, or what used to be your home because you have inherited the house uh, as the only alive member of the Finch family. And so she never wanted to go back, but as seems like almost like a sense of duty, maybe to like the family uh, mm-hmm. to return or to, to the uncover house. the mystery of the family curse or something like that. Yeah. To, um, to return. And that's the bulk of the game is learning about the family and what happened to them. Yeah. And basically each member of the family, we're going to experience a little story that is interactive each in its own individual way. So some of them are going to have, so uh, just a, an example from the very first one, uh, would be that, you know, the first room that you get into. Uh, okay, before before we dive into that, about the house. The house is awesome. The house is a really cool looking thing. You know, when you're walking up to it at the beginning, um, it looks like a house that's been, had a real weird tower built on top of it, kind of off balance and looking totally architecturally improbable. And it's got some weird found object bits. Like as you're walking around, you're like, wait, this is not a normal part of a house. This is actually a blank. Or this is like, wait, I thought I was in part of the house, but it seems like they've just stuck a blank on top of it. Like, why would they do that? It doesn't look like a house that has a weird tower built on it. It is a house that's had a weird tower (laughs) built on it. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and it's uh, it's also completely empty and left exactly as it was when you left 11 years ago, including like, you know, pizza boxes on the table and all that sort of thing. Um, but what's even weirder is that most of the rooms are sealed up in a really like serious way. We're not just talking about they locked the doors. The doors to almost all of the rooms in the house are sealed up with like caulk and a big serious looking board with bolts across it and there's just no getting in through the main door to any of the bedrooms each one has a uh, peephole that allows people mm-hmm. in the hallways and and throughout the house to look into these rooms that have been converted into memorials to like a mausoleum yes. and it's notable that this is not surprising at all to our protagonist Edith because she's like oh yeah I, I just thought everyone grew up with like houses like this yeah where whenever you die unexpectedly they just board up your room exactly as it was when you when you passed away and no one ever goes in ever again um, but Edith her sort of quest in returning to the house is to figure out how to get into each of these rooms uh, in order to kind of, uh, you know, see what the history of her family was. While we are discussing the uh, the environment of the house, I, I want to bring up sort of uh, something that Edith said about it. Um, she, You get the sense that this house is presented in a way that is colored by maybe her impression of it. Uh, and she describes it as, you know, the house seems like an ordinary house, but there's just too much of it uh, yep. or something along those lines. Well, everywhere you go, you see this overflow. Yes. And and it's visual overflow and room overflow. The biggest yeah. is the books for me. And one of the things I really liked in this is that so every surface in this house is covered and, and really cluttered with things that tell you something about the person that lived there. And one of the things that they clutter with the most 
is books. Uh, there's a library that's shuttered, but every room in the house has bookcases and bookshelves and books piled up in stacks. And if you read the, the, the spines of those books, not only are they real books that exist. Uh, oh, I didn't realize. But they are books that tell you something about the reader. So, uh, for example, um, well, I, I noticed at first that they were real books because there's a there's a book that I saw uh, early on called uh, Flour, Salt, Water, Yeast that's a real mm-hmm. bread-making book. So many cookbooks. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of, I think the, a lot of the cookbooks belonged to Edie. Um, and if you go into Edie's room, you know, you'll see that like she, she's very interested in her family. She has sort of a mix of the books that everyone has kind of, kind of a greatest hits, but every single person has their personality reflected on their bookcases. That's neat. I didn't realize that cause I wasn't really paying attention to those. Yeah. We can talk more about some of them later on in the stories. One of the things that I think is is really interesting about this. I, I, the reason that I was so excited about this is it comes from a person whose work I really trust, and that's Ian Dallas. Uh, after he started, you know, Giant Sparrow and, and made The Unfinished Swan, I've been paying a lot of attention to what he says about games and, and what he does. And uh, one of the things that I found kind of digging around online was an old project of his from all the way back in 2009 when he was in school and it made me really wonder if this is related, because the title of this project was uh, The Remains of Isidore McMyrtle Mumsy, which I think mm. at the very least... <laughs> so, peak Britishness. At the very least, there's some name cross-pollination there. There's definitely doilies and T involved, yeah. Yes. I think yeah. we're really just bringing this into this uh, episode so that we can have that name. Yes. That Isidore fantastic. McMyrtle Mumsy. But that is kind of cool. Like it seems like there is some sort of uh, some sort of a theme here where this is some this this may be based on some ideas that go back a long way for Ian Dallas. Yeah, and and it seems like seems like a, a something where the if there is a through line to that, which by the way, if you if you Google for it, you can find it on his website, uh, and it takes the form of kind of a poem about a clumsy little boy named Isidore McMyrtle Mumsy whose um, body parts would fall off, I guess. Um, and it was presented as a live performance that you can actually go and watch. Um, and so it's a, it, it's, if there is a through line here, it, it's a, a kind of a fatalistic story uh, that's told in a unique and interesting way. And um, I guess that's kind of a through line for all of these, every one of these stories that we hear in the Finch house is a story about death. And, you know, each one, I guess, takes a different different position or a different perspective. Yeah, the art style is not the same at all. But I kept thinking of Edward Gorey and his just the constant death that's around every corner in this book. Like every single, I think every small child in an Edward Gorey book dies in a delightful or odd or memorable way and i i feel like that kind of it's it's not like the six feet under where there's like someone dying in the first three minutes because the whole thing is kind of the dread and figuring it out and living it along that person um but i i do feel like um it's an interesting thing to make a video game that is um not about violence but about death. Mm-hmm. 
and there's not a lot of them that's just I mean, I've seen some about grieving but this is not necessarily about even grieving it's literally just about death it's about the inevitability the inevitability of death is is something I really t- really was looking at from this I think your comparison your your like touch point of uh, Edward Gorey is a really strong one uh, it kind of has that style I was actually thinking a little bit about um, the series of unfortunate events books mm. yeah I feel like those are cleverer than these are yeah they it's not quite the same thing but something about looking at the house from a distance and it's kind of rickety like uh piled on tower as well as things like the uh just the sort of the sort of commonplaceness of grisly demise yeah sort of made me think of that or you know things like that i think edward gory is probably a better comparison but if folks are more familiar with other things like this this has that kind of kind of kind of mundanity of and sort of inevitability of death accepted with a small amount of humor and a large part of almost boredom. Yeah, uh, I, I I don't know though. I'm gonna, I'm going to disagree just a little bit because I feel like they the family put a lot of weight in all of these deaths. I mean, you spent yeah. a lot of time going through uh, all the memorials, all the grave sites. I felt like this mm-hmm. was a family that was like obsessed with death. Uh mm-hmm. almost like uh, take the Adams family and take out all the jokes, you know, and just make it someone who's like death is a constant and they're like beat down by it more than they are like, well, there goes another one. You know, I, there's like there's there's no humor or anything in the death. Maybe there's some some there's some irony. That's true. So. Some of them, some of them. Yeah, irony is probably, it's def, there's definitely ironic deaths. In fact, almost all of them have some element of irony, but not like, they're not jokes. Yeah, well, and the family doesn't think of them as jokes. Like when I think of, uh, you know, Edward Gorey or even like the um, series of unfortunate events, everything is very, can be right. lighthearted, yeah. right? Like, yeah. There's yeah. nothing lighthearted about this game. It, it's, it's. Um, very interesting, and there are some parts that make you laugh, but again, I think because of, like, dramatic irony, what the viewer knows against what the, uh, you know, the character knows, that sort of stuff, but it's a, I I felt this was a very dark game, and I I don't think that they added any, like, um, I don't know, like, there was no lightness of death to to the family. That's just my opinion, though, because, I mean, it is weird, like they're definitely weird about they're they're they are weird about death and like fixated on it, but it's not like oh there goes another one. It's like we're gonna build another memorial and like worship this kid who died. Mm, yeah, forever. that's true. Yeah, something that we probably can't get away from this game without talking about. Um, and by now, because we're a couple weeks late on on you know talking about this, but uh, but by now it's almost old news. But right on the heels of this game's release. Uh, it became part of a larger sort of internet hot take storm, you know, um, with a particular article that was published by Ian Bogost. If you're not familiar with Ian Bogost, he's a uh, academic who writes about games. He's also made games. And um, I mean, he's a game that made he's the guy that made Cow Clicker, for example. We've talked about him on this this show before in some other contexts. He's written some fairly good books about uh, games, but he's also an academic who I think has sometimes written things that are very uh, incendiary, probably purposefully incendiary. Well, I mean, yeah, he made Cow Clicker. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He did, did make Cow Clicker. Um, and he 
published an article that was tight was on the in the Atlantic uh, that was titled "Video Games Are Better Without Stories." And basically, the argument. Now, I'm probably going to do him a little bit of a disservice by summarizing, but essentially, his argument, uh, and it was kind of as partially a review of this game, but really was a much larger point that he was trying to make, was that video games have been trying for a long time to tell stories in a similar way to film, and that they will never be as good as film uh, or as good as things like novels, for example, at telling stories, um, and that they shouldn't try, uh, that games are better without stories. Uh, and so, you know, he prefers games that are like, you know, expressions of systems and uh, tell their stories or don't tell stories, but that when where they have to stories to tell, they're they're doing them via systems and not by trying to imitate, as he sees it, um, film or television or literature. Bad um, take. Well, I mean, it's actually not the worst take. But it's not a very, it's not, it doesn't convince me at all. Uh, I, I like video games and I like stories. And if you put a story in a video game, I'm likely to like the story better because it's in a video game because I like video games. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know well, if we really need to best. spend a lot of time on this. <laughs> okay. But yeah. Yeah. Right. I, mean, I, I, the, I don't want to. Does anybody, does anybody have their, their like, their take on, on this idea I, that I, I don't know does it do we do we want to talk about this my two second take is that uh taking actions is inherently more memorable than watching something passively so it's a really dumb argument to say that cinema will always do it better yeah, I mean, yeah. new new medias <laughs> that, that's it. Are, are coming up like all the time like i think i think if anything it this is beginning to show cracks in the in the 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 name video games as a category that covers everything that you know that it tries to today mm-hmm. uh just as like you know maybe books had to be broken out into fiction non-fiction uh novels uh literary textbooks. fiction which is just means it's literature which is what does that yeah. even mean well, so yeah and i think if you it, uh, he probably has some specific examples to point to and i think you could probably pull some games that it's like uh what's the one we did that was like full of imagery it had like the buffalo or the bison and it had uh virginia virginia <laughs> virginia I, I think there's probably a legitimate argument to say like they should have made that they should have that should have been well, yeah but but i mean on uh, to to, to the, well sorry i don't mean to interrupt you but like to that point like the the biggest counter argument i saw from video game developers when i was seeing this this controversy pass through my twitter timeline was like I want to tell these stories, but I don't make movies. I make video games, right? right? That's fair. Well, and I think of something like Firewatch, which is also, you know, a a game similar to like uh, Virginia or all the other walking simulators. And it's like, I can't imagine that being uh, any better in any format other than a video game. Like that was the perfect format for that. So uh, I think you could back up your argument with specific examples either side, um, but I think big picture, it's absolutely wrong because we have examples of how it works. Like all you need is like one example, Firewatch, done. Your argument is is not right. You can go back to the like 1920 and you can look up um, movie reviews where they say that spectacle was the death of cinema, where they say that editing was the death of cinema. Like literally every technique yeah. that we hold true. So it's it's really 
whenever you become a genre police or a technique police, I think you're on the wrong side of history. Mm -hmm. Or you take a game like uh, Gone Home, and it's like, okay, that's a 10-minute movie that's a bathtub story of just someone like having revelations about their family like boring and not fun to watch and you'd have to have like narration or like thought bubbles or something stupid but as a game it's brilliant so yeah i I, ian bogost is a smart guy and it's worth reading this article because he makes some really interesting points they don't entirely convince me but i think that you know he he's not he's not he's not dumb right no he's not dumb this is like this is like he's just wrong not a it's just not a take that I particularly found convincing. Smart people have wrong opinions all the time. Just because you're uh, – yeah. I mean, just because you are someone who's smart doesn't mean you can not be wrong about things. I, I mean, think like – I just want to pat a short wrong game on the back things. for having layered take upon take. We have never take, been wrong about anything. And never having been wrong <laughs> once. And, uh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a miracle, I would say. No one is – like, we do do short games, so – the games that we play, people are more likely to say, why couldn't this be a movie? Because it can actually be a movie. But there's going to be more and more narrative games that are great that are seven, six, seven, eight hours. And no one's watching movies this long unless no. they're called about O.J. Simpson. So Yeah. And I will say that, like, specifically in this article, Ian Bogus calls out uh, this, you know, Edith Finch as a game that improves upon some of the ideas of Gone Home, and he praises it. He says that it's a good game, but he also says that it's not, you know, it, it, he thinks of this as sort of like uh, like the wrong path for games to be going down, even though this may be a good game at doing what it's trying to do. Um, and I think that it is really worth pre- examining this stuff and trying to decide where to, to, to focus your attention as a creator. But I think what's really interesting here is that like this even Ian Bogost in this article that I mostly completely disagree with um, really praises what remains of Edith Finch for adding on to the verb set or that's the wrong word here, but I guess like the, the sort of toolbox of ideas that uh, that something based on uh, environmental storytelling can employ. Um, and that does that kind of by giving you this environmental storytelling and then occasionally breaking out into these fully realized uh, sort of scenes, these first-person scenes that go further than just picking up a book and reading the back and learning something about the person who put, the, put that book there. And not always first-person. Right. The, this game will break, will will plop you into several different j- genres of storytelling, and it's done seamlessly and effectively because of the frame that they've set up. They can do really whatever they want. So let's talk about some of those specific examples, this, this sort of mini stories within this larger game. And we're going to have to store spoiler break probably sooner rather than later, uh, because we don't want to spoil all the surprises of the game. But I think it's okay um, for us to talk at least about the very first one in some detail, because it's it was part of all of the sort of press demos for this game. So I think there's nothing really wrong with spoiling some of the details of the very first story, which was Molly, the, um, the, you know, youngest member of the, well, actually not the youngest member of the family to die. The first one that we look at. And what is she, uh, like six or something like that? We should have their ages somewhere. Um, she's very in the 40s. Yeah. She was born 1937, died 1947. So okay. 10. So she was 10. Every single one of the books on her bookshelves is about an animal. Oh, a different great animal. Every single book on the bookshelf is a different mm-hmm. animal. Wild. So 
in the game, you go in uh, as Edith Finch. The, w- the way the sort of frame works is you 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 get into Molly's room through not the main door, um, and you find a little shrine in the room uh, to or memorial to Molly. And sitting on like the sh- the the memorial, and this is across all of them, will be some artifact, you know, either like a journal or. Uh, a, a series of photos or something and Edith as the character picks them up and you are transported now into the story of how this person died so in this case with Molly we're picking up like a journal um, and you start yeah. reading it and as you're reading it out loud you begin to play Molly who has been sent to her room for doing something uh, naughty? I forget what it is, but she's not allowed to. She's not able. She's not able to eat. So yeah. it is the middle of the night, and she gets out of bed and she's hungry. And um, she goes. If you go to the door, you pound on it and ask to be let out because the bedroom door is locked. She's locked in her bedroom, and uh, her mother Edie uh, tells her to go back to bed. And I started to feel like something was very wrong here. Um, Hmm. I felt immediately very worried about this child who, first off, is locked in her bedroom. Mm -hmm. And second, is so hungry that she immediately starts going. And and the only thing she can do interacting in this room, uh, you know, is sort of talking to herself and looking at her pets uh, and eating some of their pet food, like literally eating some gerbil food that looks nasty. Um, then eating look- a whole tube of toothpaste, Ugh. eating some berries off of a plant that is growing right next to the toilet. Yes. <laughs> it's a holly bush. I think it was winter. And so I think it was a, mm. I think it was a Christmas decoration. decoration. Yeah. And she sees a bird outside her. So we're narrating the whole, we don't need to narrate the whole, uh, moment by moment of it but long story short she sees a bird outside her window and tries to open the window and go after it and she turns into a cat and that's the that's the sort of gameplay conceit of this mini story is that she's turning from one animal or creature into another one after another uh in a in you know and all of them are hunting for food so the cat is hunting the bird and she climbs out on the windowsill and tries to catch the bird. And as soon as she does, she turns into an owl or a hawk or something. I forget what. And then you're playing out a scenario where you're flying around the fields around the house and trying to dive and catch various animals. And when you finally, yeah, when you finally catch up, the the funniest moment, the most amusing one was when the bird finally catches a large rabbit and starts trying to swallow it, but it's too large. And then uh, uh, Molly immediately turns into a shark, but she's turned into a shark up in a tree and has to roll down the hill into the water before she can then start. Yeah, it's around silly. Like it's kind of ra- it's like a ragdoll shark, and you're controlling the shark. It, it's it's kind of silly. It, it, it's pretty funny. Yeah, and finally she turns into a kind of a tentacle monster. It's never really shown. Doctor Dad, yeah. You turn into Doctor Dad. Yeah. yeah, it's never shown in. It's only in first person. So, and she just describes herself as having turned into a monster. So, once you turn into this monster, you're tentacle monstering around, eating people, 
And finally, uh, she goes up a pipe and you realize she's in her, she realizes she's in her own room and suddenly she's back in her own body, but she knows that the monster that she was just eating people as is under her bed and she knows that it's about to eat her. The final line of it was really great. We both know I will be delicious. And that's the last line of her journal because this is all the while being narrated by Edith and that's all we get. Can I we, uh, we, can I throw something out there about this one? This was, upon reflection, the one that might be the most troubling and disturbing to me because I felt as though the cause of death is ambiguous enough and it's hinted enough that, that, that perhaps blame should fall on Edie here. Yep. And because um, th- this, this child is very, very, very hungry and locked in her room and dies. I'm, I'm very curious about like, and furthermore, I think there is some, there's some um, animosity towards the mother that's expressed in the story on Molly's part, because in each of these scenarios in which she's eating something, uh, except for the one in which she becomes a monster on the ferry, um, she's eating a mother. She's, she's, she's eating a seeking, mother. Yeah. yeah. She's, she's hunting yeah. down a mother bird and then a mother rabbit. And I, I kind of read that as maybe, uh, just hunger and animosity towards her mother. Yeah. They hmm. call it a curse, but there are several deaths in this story that are not blameless. There are, there are some blameless deaths, you know, accidents happen. Um, but there are several deaths that I would say are, are, are very much not blameless. That being said, we don't know for sure how Molly died. All we know is that was the journal of her last night. This is all being told from like an interpretation of the journal. I mean, she yeah. could have died from any number of things, but it seems to be very related to either hunger, which is very, I mean, they're not a, they're a well-to-do family. So the thought of her like dying from starvation is unlikely, but it seems unless most likely it's been that, Child abuse. And right. child abuse. It seems, but they're, yeah. It's hard to tell, you know. But she did eat a whole tube of toothpaste. I think <laughs> she had mollyberries. Yeah. One thing the game tells you right after this is that, you know, Edie, uh, or Edith rather, after reading the journal and leaving the room, uh, says in the narration, you know, that uh, I don't know if I uh, believe that it's pretty far fetched, but I know that the people in these stories believed them. And I think that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the way the game wants us to see these stories is that these are uh, these are how the people who lived these experiences saw them. Not necessarily, you know, this is this is what they believed was happening to them, uh, either realistically or in some sort of uh, you know child mind kind of way. Like these are these are interpretations rather than reality. We're not watching little movies of this person's death. We are playing through what this character had been told or was trying to figure out about how this person died. So, like, there's there's none of them that it's like, oh, this is this is a a factual moment of history, and this person died. Like, this is a a perfect retelling of the last moment of their lives. This is just like, you know, how the stories passed down through the family or whatever. It, it, it's a ton of it's open for interpretation. Most of the deaths, you don't really know for sure how they died. 
Yeah, and I think you could accept it as just sort of a part of the world of the game. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of reviews for this game kind of threw around the phrase magical realism. And I think there's a good argument to be made that that's what this is going for. You know, if you uh, look at the house, it's got this sort of improbable architecture and sort of bizarre uh bizarre things like the walling and caulking off of the rooms seen as sort of uh just standard laura is our resident expert however on magical realism i am yes i am i'm the associate artistic director of a magical realism theater company (laughs) adjusting my glasses um i mean i'm not the gatekeeper but i will say that um some of the segments are magical realism and some magical realism and some of them are not um i think each segment's a different genre and Mm -hmm. they vary um when i talk about it uh i like pointing towards like pan's labyrinth where to the person experiencing it it is just as real um both sides of the fairy tale and the real things going on her house are just as dire and just as important um, I think that ta- by taking it away and only putting it in journal entries, it takes some of it out of it. It makes it a little more literary in some ways. It makes it a little more yeah. fanciful. It seems um, to me that it can't. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no. And I was just going to say that the working definition I always use is like there's impossible events and they're seamlessly integrated into an otherwise realistic environment that people are just kind of moving their lives in like someone's an almond. She's an almond now, and everyone kind of just, that's the new reality. Mm-hmm. Um, Angels in America, like, I, I, there's a lot of, like, Pushing Daisies has a lot of magical realism in it. Like, this guy can now, like, there's a lot of TV shows playing with elements of it. So I would say that because they question so much, that it, some of them, like, some of the segments are, no spoilers, but Gregory's, I think, is magical realism. Mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say that Barbara's is or Walter's, mm-hmm. you know, it varies. Yeah. But they straight up say their stories. You know, I, I but definitely they say see their that. stories and that's kind of what keeps me from going. Eh. Yeah. That's why I don't think it is. I think the only argument would maybe be the big building, like the crazy, like the crazy house. But even that, like, you know, people have built themselves some silly. Homes you can before. take elements from the genre without, without, uh, it actually being a pure work. So, mm-hmm. well, something I think you're banging up against there is that this isn't a particularly consistent game. Like it's it's really it's a and this is it's 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 tied together very loosely by the frame story and by a, an element which I wouldn't even necessarily call a theme because each each death or each story kind of has its own theme. Um, but it has this sort of tied together by the by the story element of these are each stories that end with someone's death. But other than that, these are all extraordinarily different pieces um, in the way that they're told, in their tone. You know, some of them are funny, some of them aren't. Some of them are meant to be taken fairly literally, it seems, and others have this sort of fantasticalness to them. And if I actually had to, I, I, I really liked this game, but I have to say that what really worked for me is each individual thing, each individual component, um, but it feels very kind of loosely tied together. And so as a whole, I don't think it carried through a theme really well. Um, it's it's a bit disjointed. One of the things that that makes me think about uh, is in the uh, sort of Reddit AMA uh, that was done by uh, Ian Dallas, the creative director for the game. Um, 
he kind of talked a little bit about their process for putting it together. And it sounded like uh, the game grew out of the concepts of the short stories and not out of the overall yeah. story concept. And you do f- you do feel that. I, I kind of like an anthology game, but I, I think um, I like it when I'm totally fine when everything is very different. I think I just wanted a little bit stronger um, meta narrative. Well, they they try they they try to wrap it all together at the end, and I think that's where it kind of has where I I did have get lost a little bit because I really really enjoyed this game, and then at the end they really try to put a bow on things and like they really try to make like all of this meant something, and I don't really know what it meant. You know, I I, I felt like yeah. they kind of missed uh, the the bow tie at the end, so I would have liked them to either not try to make it mean anything and just say like here's here were like 10 really unique individual experiences i hope you like them or spend some more time trying to add a a theme to it or something like that so i would like the final segment where you uh finally find a gun and (laughs) go back through and kill the entire family yeah absolutely Where's the time travel portal where we find out that you actually caused all of those deaths? <laughs> now, save save the girl. Save your dad. Save them all. If yeah. this game would have been made like six years ago, you would have found out that it was like, Edith is actually in a mental hospital, and this was like a thought exercise. And oh, she's, that, yeah. And she's oh, this is not away. a spoiler, but again, seated by magical realism, I've read so many plays where like, they're secretly ghosts. And I was Ugh. like, please don't have Edith be a ghost. Please don't have Edith be a ghost. Thank God on that. It's not yeah, a spoiler. It's not a ghost. It's, I, I'm fine spoiling the fact that she's not a ghost. You guys do not be worried that she's secretly a ghost the whole time. <laughs> but, but, well, it's funny, though, is like uh, one thing that we, we were talking worried. about gone. We, well, we were talking about gone home, you know, a lot already. And one of the things that like constantly was on my shoulders while I was playing gone home was like, there's going to be ghosts. Oh, God, there's going to be ghosts. Like, this has to be a haunted house. And, you know, it, it never comes through. And in this game, I felt like the opposite. Like, I knew there was not ghosts, <laughs> And I, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I felt like yeah. a reassurance that, like, like, this is the real world. These stories I'm being told are are not you know but i i I felt like the real world was grounded enough that i was not worried about about ghosts or anything like that yeah i wish more games like this one had just sort of a screen right up front before you load anything that says ghosts aren't real (laughs) yeah (laughs) do you feel like you have to be reminded of that um a lot well actually do you think ghosts are not real shane i do not think ghosts are real but thank you (laughs) I just wanted you to remind yourself there. Sam Goldstein, if you're listening, I I respect your beliefs no matter how wrong they are. <laughs> Shane just needs that that screen at the start of the game that says, you know, this bears no uh, any any um any uh, resemblance, resemblance to people living <laughs> or dead or ghosts which aren't real is purely coincidental. If if any of our listeners are ghosts, please get in touch. Please get in touch. I would just be so happy if like a bunch of indie stuff just the first meeting had a card that said this protagonist is not secretly dead. XOXO the devs. And I'd be like, "Thank you. I've been a worry about this." And maybe add on to that that like they're also not 
in a mental hospital yeah. or it's not going to be all a dream and that they're going to wake up from at the end. I think we're finally past that, though. I think that's why. So no um, Caligari. We're, we're getting past that. We're seeing that with these games. Um, uh, yeah. And you games. said like would have done this Night six years ago. I think you're right. It's not. It's not a yeah, contemporary I think, way well, to do things. And I, and I think that's great. Um, one thing I am worried about, though, is that uh, so we, you know, recently discovered that there was like international iTunes reviews and we saw some nice things said about us. Have we have we checked to see are there ghost reviews on iTunes? Is there a separate section for ghosts and how they, uh, you know, rate their podcasts? Yeah, but we just can't see. If it. they are, they're not visible to us at all. I'm just afraid to look. They're written in lemon juice <laughs> so that we have to hold them up to a fire <laughs> to see them. So I guess... It's probably about time for us to do our spoiler break and start talking about some of the specifics of the later uh, story segments. We, So I just want to sort of tease stuff, because if you're a listener who just stops at the spoiler break, and good for you, because this is one of those games where really you ought to experience it. Yeah, for real. Totally, for, for real. You ought to totally experience it fresh. I 100% recommend playing this game. It is 20 bucks, or is it 15? I forget. 20 bucks 20. on 20. PS4 and Steam. Um, It'll take you about... Two and a half hours. Yep. Uh, one piece of advice. If you finish something and you don't know what to do next, don't backtrack. Hmm. The game will let you backtrack and it's never the answer. That's a really good point. Yeah, <laughs> it it's, is never, it's a... ever, ever the answer. Also, you can miss stories. I know from my personal experience, but don't worry. You get a chance to... Uh play those anyway that's true yeah um a few other things so that there are many of these stories that are really jaw-droppingly interesting little pieces um so we haven't talked if, if none of the sort of gameplay stuff we just talked about for example with uh with the uh, molly story of turning into various animals if that doesn't really like ring your bell there there are 10 of these and at least five of them were things that i had never seen before in a video game Ever. And that's saying something like not all of these are, are an idea or a gameplay interaction or whatever that would make sense for a larger experience than a 10 minute sequence in a three hour game. But they're all or many of them, at least, are totally new ideas that I had never seen before anywhere else. Um, some of them jaw dropping, some of them like, wow, holy crap, this was really clever. And some of them extremely upsetting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's hmm. what really is the draw here. You know, the the story, the overall, you know, overarching story didn't really work for me 100%. It was fine. It was kind of interesting. You know, Edith Finch herself, the main character, eh, you know, she's fine. This is no gone home in terms of like how I connected with it on an emotional level or how I how compelling well, I thought You don't get that, any information about her. Right. At all. Yeah. Almost so. none, yeah. Um but those those stories that are contained within this, the the little interactions are great. They are really clever. And this is this is a toolkit of ideas that you are going to see these ideas or variations on them in a thousand other games for the next five years. So, you know, this is like like that Gone Home moment, I think, when every developer played Gone Home and then started incorporating ideas from it in their own work and we're still seeing the effects of that to this day. I think you're going to see something similar with this. This has some really clever ideas that you're going to see again. And so you should, you should check this game out. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend it. So 
we as we talked about uh, recently we are switching over to doing our sort of admin talk before the spoiler break this show will continue after you Exciting hear the spoiler admin break talk. Yeah. So, um, first off, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the on the short game. Uh, I have been one of your hosts, Reagan Kelly, and we are all here. Laura, oh, I'm uh, at Reagan K on Twitter, and you can find the show on Twitter at underscore short game or www.theshortgame.net, where you'll find a contact form and you can get in touch with us that way. Or you can leave us a review on iTunes, which we absolutely love, even if you're a ghost. Um, although if you are a ghost, make sure to let us know that you left us a review because obviously we won't be able to see those. Um, <laughs> Nate. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at NateSTL. And Shane, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter.com at my profile page. At Shane, Shane Ver- no, 8, 8-Bit Shane. Thank you. And uh, Laura Nash, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Laura J. Nash. And here it is, ladies and gentlemen, your spoiler break. So there are 10 stories in this game, depending on how you count them. Uh, Like some of them are kind of slight, really short little things that don't probably require a lot of discussion. Others are pretty long and really kind of involved. Um, And so I I think what will probably work best would be for us to just sort of talk about some of the ones that stuck out to us as the most interesting or important in one way or another um, and kind of go roughly in chronological order. you know, right after right after uh, you see Molly's death story, there's a very brief one with Odin, uh, the o- oldest person, who gives you some important context on the family and their curse. The patriarch was, of the family. Yeah, that one was hardly even interactive. It was more just sort of like a viewmaster. Yeah, and I believe that one is located in um, Edith's bedroom, right? And so you're learning yeah. a lot about the matriarch and patriarch of this family. Right, them. Edith Senior, yes. mm, exactly, and Edith why Senior, they came so. to, yeah, and how and why they came to America. Actually, <laughs> yeah, the the whole sort of that that element of the frame story, like, I don't think it really I, paid off that well in the end of the the story. It was all a setup. Here, here's why I think they did it. It was all a setup to have the really truly unique setup of a house that sank mm-hmm. like right off of the shore. Yeah, um, they're moving their house from. Uh, I'm sorry, Norway. Norway. Yeah, Norway. They're moving their house from Norway uh, to the east coast, and it sinks right off of the coast. and And it's a cool set piece, and it's a cool, uh, you know, maybe magical realism, uh, you know, sort of thing. And I think it was all to serve that imagery, and not necessarily to serve any like grand story purpose. Yeah, but the first, like, fully involved story that we experience is Calvin's death. Calvin is Grandpa Sam's uh, twin brother, so he died Space um, kid. many years back. And their room is my favorite room in the in the whole game, because you, you finally break into uh, Calvin and Sam's room, and it's exactly as it was in, I guess, the 50s or something as, like, yeah, two Reagan, twin I was like, uh, sons, twin wow, boys. Wow, this, this reminds me of our plan for our shared childhood bedroom where we were going to turn the bunk beds into the sewer from the Ninja Turtles. This is adorable. And any, <laughs> anywhere above the bunk bed was going to be the New York City streets where you could procure pizza and fight crime. 
And so it would be below, seen in third person top down, and then everything below would be seen in side scroller. Yeah, uh, exactly. Up style. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as far as we got with that, I think was the Ninja Turtle sheets and the idea that we, if we <laughs> if we draped the Ninja Turtle sheets from the top bunk, then the area below that top bunk bed that was the sewer. Yeah, this one was much more like, what if your grandma or what if your mom was like a painter who just like put space stuff all over one half of the room? And then after your brother died, memorialized it, and you had to live in it for seven years. Yeah, that's the horrifying thing here. And that's, like, part of the, like, just, I guess, institutionalized, like, uh, emotional train wreck of this family is that, you know, Calvin, the, the, the room is split cowboy and space. Calvin was into cowboy or Calvin was into space stuff and Sam was into uh into um uh, cowboy stuff and when Calvin dies and you see Calvin's death and we'll talk ah, about that Ah the two genders cowboy, <laughs> yes. yes cowboys and space as toy story has taught us there are two choices for boys <laughs> Oh you poor little g- limited gender toys you have cowboys and and space that's yep. it so true. And the the it, the story is a bit heartbreaking. You know, you go up into Calvin's little like mission control room on his bunk bed and you read a story that Sam wrote after his death and you're sort of he- hearing this in uh in narration while Calvin, you're playing as Calvin sort of, but you're on a swing and uh Sam is saying, you know, when uh when Calvin set his mind to do something, he did it. That's what I want to remember about my brother. And, he said he'd uh, die before eating mushrooms again. And he did. Yep. And uh, Calvin has set his mind. Sam told Calvin it was impossible to go over the top on a swing set. And so that's what Calvin tries to do and successfully does it and then flies off of a cliff and dies. It's so brutal. But it's it's fun, though, uh, as you're playing it because you are playing – uh, a kid like swinging and doing a full loop to loop on a swing, which is uh, a lot of fun. And then in the game, you go flying off into the sky, whereas we know like so this is where I was talking about before the spoiler break, like clear neglect. Who Because like, like they built this tree swing at like the top of this cliff. Like, <laughs> what a one ma- that. Not even if the kid like. Is trying How to many times something- did we jump off swing sets and like miss and like accidentally kick a kid in the head? Like the, this, the, the it's so much worse to I like. Think, I think the real the real curse is like Edith Senior's like parenting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, hey, there's a tree at the top of that like eighty foot sheer cliff. Let's tie a rope swing to it. You know, yeah. Uh, but the the so the story itself, the like interactive part of that is one of the shortest in the game, and it's not exactly one of the most dramatically cool or interesting in the game, but I just really, really liked that. Maybe it's just because I have a twin, and, you know, stuff about that just kind of works on me in an obvious sort of way, but, like, that was, you know, the, reading the letter that Sam wrote about his dead twin brother made me really sad, and the room was just such an interesting, obvious visual, and the idea that this kid... That they literally just roped off half of the room and this kid had to live for seven more years in a room where half of it was all his dead brother's stuff that, you know, he wasn't allowed to move or touch. That's brutal. 
and just really sad and interesting. I just I, I really liked this story, even though it maybe wasn't the most like gameplay interesting. It just was it was one of the ones that felt most real and sad to me. Yeah, and gameplay was kind of fun. You know, your left mm-hmm. stick controls the left leg and the right stick controls the right leg. So I, I I figured that out immediately. And then recently, because we were about to do, it's been a few days since I played the game. And so I went back to watch a YouTube video uh, of a playthrough of the game before, um, you know, before we got started recording. And the, the streamer who was playing it didn't figure out I guess that you could control both legs. And so they were trying to do the swing thing with just the left stick. And the whole time I was like pulling my hair out. I was like, you can move both legs, move both (laughs) legs. Damn it. Ah, um, and it took him like really long time to figure that out and be able to actually do the loop to loop. It was very frustrating. So, yeah. So after Calvin, uh, there's a couple, so we, we did say we don't necessarily need to talk about everyone. I think we might as well just mention the ones that were sort of skimming past. Um, Barbara, the child star. Uh, yeah, to me, Barbara's story was one of the more interesting ones. Yeah, uh, Barbara's was my second favorite one. Yeah, Barbara okay. has this uh, – Barbara is a child star who was in like a, a movie about – I think it was called My Friend Bigfoot. And <laughs> yeah. so she's like a, she's like a, a has-been child star, uh, but – has been by the age of 16 which is kind of kind of lame and she's featured in a comic book uh that is meant to be kind of a true crime comic book in the style of the old um kind of creepy sort of it's it's very specifically like like a tales from the crypt comic yes well tales from the crypt is a is itself inspired by you know horror comics of the pre-code horror comics well there yeah and and by the tales from the crypt comics but the tales from the crypt comics you know added on to that with the 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 sort of specific voice and style of the the hbo uh like crypt Crypt Keeper. keeper yes right so this has a, uh, you know, this comic is presided over by someone doing a pitch perfect Crypt Keeper uh, impression, uh, narrating the whole thing. What was really cool about the gameplay of that was that it alternates between what is basically a motion comic. Oh, like it's totally comic zone. Right. It is right. comic zone. First person comic zone. Yeah. So sometimes it's playing out just in, you know, in third person uh, animated uh, sort of motion comic. If you've seen some of the like, uh, like even Marvel has like a thing where they do motion comics of some of their comic books and they do a kind of a similar thing. You know, they, you've got the comic book panels and the comic book text, but maybe the text is animated. Maybe they do pans and zooms within the frames, that sort of thing. But then occasionally, or more and more as the, as the story goes on, those comic book panels are actually first person. So you're moving around and you still see the comic book frame on screen, but within that frame is like a first person controlled thing. It's kind of cell shaded to look like a comic book. Uh, it was pretty neat. It was not my favorite. It was a great the, effect. I thought, yeah, it was clever. Uh, I liked it because, um, of all of them, I am the least certain how this person died. And maybe you it's guys been mythologized. Found it more cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cause at the end of the comic book, it is that she is torn apart and eaten by real monsters who were mask- <laughs> masquerading as fans of hers. And all they ever found of her was her ear in this lockbox. And the only thing I could think of is maybe she was actually murdered by her boyfriend, which is kind of the first part of the story. Um, but other than that, I have no idea how she actually died. But there's also a very clear reality to it because – 
there are details that are in that comic that are present in the house all around the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like just outside where like there's a broken railing and, you know, from a, from yeah, a that's fall. how you learn how to get into the basement is she explains how to unlock the basement to her boyfriend in the comic. And then you use that information later to get down there. And it's real. It works. So I, I don't know. Or, and it's so, um, so real that another character is scared of whatever killed her. So like, I, I just have no idea how she actually died. I mean, she was, I, she, I believe she was definitely murdered. Um, it's just kind of a question if it was like crazy fan, if it was like Brando, or if it was boyfriend. But mm-hmm. Walter definitely saw her murdered and then messed him up for the rest of his life. Yeah, that was the next story. So she was babysitting Walter when she was murdered. Um, so something something I kind of feel like I should mention about this is like you can spend a lot of time and mental energy kind of figuring out what the relationships between all of these characters are. And I did. I was, like, mapping it out. They have the pause menu as a family tree. I was, like, trying to make little notes to keep track of who was related to who and who played into who else's stories how. And by the end of the game, I quit doing that because ultimately I didn't feel like it really enhanced the experience to really, like, it, but this is one place where the the stories do seem to kind of play off of each other is that Barbara dies and Walter is scarred by it. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the stories really stand alone. So if you don't feel like trying to figure out, okay, wait, so this person was whose mom or, yeah, you know, this person I did was not whose that, dad. So. It doesn't really matter. I didn't do any of that. I mean, you, you even without, per, like, purposefully mapping it out, you start to at least understand the, the tiers of generations. Like, I felt like I pretty mm-hmm. well understood who was, like, of the grandparents' tier and then who was, like, the kids and then who was the kids of the kids. And that yeah. felt, like, good enough for me. Totally. The, the next story on Walter's... Uh, Walter, uh, I guess, was scarred by whatever happened with Barbara and decided to escape the family curse. He would live in the basement for the rest of his life. And he spent 30 years Bomb down shelter. there. Yeah. 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 This one was probably, I wouldn't say, I mean, this was probably the least impressive to me of all of mm-hmm. these stories. Partly because I just, it, it like gameplay wise, it didn't really do anything that interesting. It literally just gives you a little bit of like, a video to watch I essentially felt like it was there to make Barbara's death seem more real. Hmm, maybe so hmm. to ground it because we just had this fanciful comic and be like, no, uh, someone did actually get murdered and it had an effect on the family because it's, it's the most lighthearted of the death stories. So I figured that was why they placed that there. And then they have like right after that, they also have the grandpa Sam, which is a very realistic grounded Mm-hmm. story as well i think with his death too you could also say it's showing that like at least someone tried to like do something about it i mean his choice was really bad but you know we watch all these horror movies and it's like just don't go in the house like at least he was trying to avoid <laughs> you know he was trying to avoid death um in a weird way but he was trying at least whereas everyone else was just you know dying basically but we moving on from there you you go outside and you get into uh into you break back into the house basically into a room that was grandpa sam's room sam is uh calvin's twin brother but obviously like he he was able to grow up and had kids of his own and i think that who's your mom yeah right right one of whom is your mom and that's dawn right your mom is dawn yep Yes. Yeah. 
So the Grandpa Sam story, Grandpa Sam's death, is told in a way that I thought was really, really clever. Um, kind of less of like a dramatic and interesting death than a lot of the others, but basically uh, you find a stack of photos from a hunting trip that Dawn, your mother, and Grandpa Sam went on. And the way this plays out gameplay-wise is really neat. You know, you are, as the player, you're looking through the lens of a camera. And when you snap a photo, it instantly cuts to the photo that Edith is holding in her hands and flipping through. So, you know, you take a photo, Edith flips that photo off of the stack, and you're back in the scene and either taking another photo or you're in a different moment. And so it really, it was it was just a really clever way to do this sort of, uh, this gameplay, or it's hardly can even really time call compression. it gameplay. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's a really clever way to do time compression and sort of like first-person storytelling. You're always looking through a camera, but you're not like wandering around a space trying to decide what to photograph. You're just snapping photos, and Edith is flipping through those photos and seeing the progression of this hunting trip. Yeah. I Man, for me, like of all the ones that were like affecting, this is the one that I was the most just like – Oh my god! Like I, I don't know. This sucked super hard. To, to yeah, you know she's she's forced to go hunting, and I know a lot of people have had to go through that. And she's like forced to kill this deer, uh, and then uh, you know it like knocks her father off a cliff. Mm. To just like imagine yeah. that like setting to have to go through that. And I know it's all like a game, but like. Man, in that final image, him like yeah, falling, he set like, the timer on the camera so the that they could the take camera. the photo together, uh, and it's in that instant when that camera snaps when the deer knocks him off the cliff and he dies. Gosh, that's that's like, and you you know you it's constantly kind of in kind of hinting at how messed up Edith's mom is uh, by all of this stuff. Like it seems like Edith Senior or Edie, the grandmother or great grandmother actually, has sort of taken all of this death in stride and she has adapted and figured out how to be a cheerful person amid the slaughter right and maybe that's why she lives to be 98 years old or however old it is when she dies finally she's the only one that this curse never touches um and and edith's mom dawn is like exactly the opposite she's like you know she's the person who steps into the grows up in this scenario and never just sees it as normal. She sees it as one horrifying, you know, she sees it as, as we would as one horrifying thing after another and wants to escape from it. Um, and this is sort of like the first real picture you get of what Edith's mom is actually like. And it's this horrifying situation. Um, I guess the, ne the next one after that was the one that personally for me was the most, the saddest, although in a way it's also the most charming. It's a weird one, um, Gregory. So I'd have to look at the at the family tree again to kind of really pin down where this guy falls again. If I remember correctly, it's like Don's baby brother, right? Right. So this would have been Edith's uncle, but if had he lived, but Gregory well, he was. He is a baby. Didn't live. But well, still <laughs> uncle. <laughs> well, they never they never coincided. So I guess so. Sure. Um, yeah. So Gregory is a baby that, that uh, I mean, I don't think it's too much. We're already past spoiler break, so whatever. Gregory is a baby that drowned in a bath. Um, but what you're playing out is that final bath. And the, the voiceover is reading a letter that Gregory's father wrote to Gregory's mother 
as part of their divorce proceedings about what a happy baby Gregory was. And Gregory, you're playing first person as the baby in the bath. And whenever nobody's looking, the bath is, the bath toys are doing a fantastical dance for you. And you are kind of remotely directing this. Yeah. This it's, it's like Fantasia. Berkeley, yeah. It's yeah. This like 1930s, you know, movie water musical, ballet, water these, ballet you know, moment, rubber ducks, little rubber ducks in the frog. And there's an achievement if you knock all of the letters off the side of the bathtub. Oh, I didn't know that. It's that kind of game. Yeah. So there's, and it's this incredible, like, it was really beautiful. And I kind of knew it was coming, right? But it's incredibly beautiful and joyful the whole time. I thought They it was- kept leaving that baby alone in the bathtub. And I was like, but with water in it. And I was like, stop oh doing this. This baby's going to drown any second. This baby's going to drown any second. And they drained the bathtub. And I was like, oh, and there was like soap in the water. And I was like, oh, no, the baby's going to drink the soap. And then I was like. Oh no, the baby's gonna drown again. They're gonna drown. Like, this baby's gonna drown. It yep. was. <sighs> it's a it's a terrifying story. I mean, it's it, it it makes you feel horrible to like think about this happening to someone and to hear all the while the story of like and this what you didn't mention about this letter is it's a letter in which he uh, is basically at the end of this. It's clearly their marriage has ended over probably because of this, but he's forgiving her right, mm-hmm. uh, even though. Uh, it seems like it's 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 her fault. Um, well, you know, the, she, well, she was on the phone fault. with him. They were both on the they were yeah. both on the phone. That's yeah. right. Now it's her yeah. fault. Yeah, I don't care who well. you're it's on the phone fault. with. It's her fault. You don't for... leave the baby alone ever in a yeah. bathtub. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in a bathtub. <laughs> it's kind of a very heartbreaking story. Um, but like really, really well done. The next one after that was similarly kind of like minimally like it, it similarly. I guess poetic. Uh, that was Gus's death. Gus was a little older when he died. He was a teenager. And they were having a wedding out on the beach. Oh, Gus, yeah. I just and loved he... Gus. <laughs> yeah, we don't really get much Gus of a picture a of what punk. Gus is like. Uh-huh. You just get He's got a little mohawk. mohawk. Yeah. 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 And Gus's story was great because it was told in the form of a poem. And actually, the poem was really well done. It was all rhyming couplets. And you're just flying a kite while everyone else is uh doing you know is, is is celebrating a wedding on the beach i think was it edie that wrote the poem yeah mm-hmm. yeah it was, i thought it was dawn dawn oh right yeah. sorry yes it's dawn dawn that wrote the poem that's right because it was her his sister and uh it, the, the poem is very humorous especially you know given the subject matter and the the author and uh it's it's just sort of this kid being a total shit right so he um, he just refuses to come down for, I believe, a wedding. For um, his dad's wedding. His dad's like, wedding. Yeah. He's like, I don't need a stepmom. And he flicks him off. Well, the interaction of it is, is really cool, too, because, you know, you're seeing this poem kind of appear in, this, in the air above this beach wedding as it proceeds. And you're sort of standing apart from it and flying the kite. But then with the kite, you start knocking things over, you know, so the wind is picking up and your little kite string is flitting all around the wedding scene. And at first, you're just kind of collecting the letters with your kite string. But eventually, you're collecting the furniture and it's all blowing along in a trail behind your kite. And eventually, everything blows over. And it's really interesting physics. Like, I was really kind of just impressed with the physics of this, because it's just everything's moving in this very 
cool way. And it's um, fun. It's yeah. destructive. It's kind of fun, you know, video gamey destructive sort of thing. And it meets I think the, this uh, is sort of, of like peak Edward Gorey for this thing. The character is yeah. kind of an FU kind of character, and so it's it's very much in the spirit of that character to be causing havoc and destruction and knocking things yeah. over and blowing everything around. And then ultimately it's his downfall. And I was thinking, I was like, oh, God, okay, so this kid's going to get hit by lightning. Like, you're flying a kite in a thunderstorm. It's like, yeah. it's going to get hit by lightning. But it seems he actually got hit by, like, the debris. Like, Yeah, the... I think that something blew over and hit him and killed him. The tent, yeah. Yeah. All that bunting. Bunting is lethal, guys. Don't do it. <laughs> the next one was uh, Milton, and this was even shorter. This was probably in terms of like actual uh, stuff that you do uh, to sort of experience their story, probably the shortest one. It's literally just you look at a flipbook. Um, but it's really neat in that it's a crossover with the Unfinished Swan. Uh, I was so excited to see that happen. When you go out to Milton's room, which is a little white tower kind of set apart from the house, it immediately begins play. Well, first off, you see the little... Uh, floor mat in front of Milton's door and it's the logo from the king in the unfinished swan and I was like oh neat reference and then you climb in and it's actually like it's all white it looks like an unfinished swan level He's inside the king. his room yeah and <laughs> there's like swan tracks on the floor and you know it plays the music from the unfinished swan yeah it's so they don't really know what happened to him he disappeared um, and then if you've played the Unfinished Swan, then you know he goes on to be the king. Yeah, he, uh, the, the, the flip book you watch shows him kind of painting a doorway and walking into it and closing it and disappearing, um, which is kind of something that happens in the Unfinished Swan. Something kind of was weird about that to me, though, just to, like, the Unfinished Swan starts very storybooky and tells you, you know, this is a story about Monroe, and Monroe is an orphan. And in this, uh, this it seems to be the same character, maybe. No, um, it's, uh, the, the character is the... But it's... So Milton, sorry, Monroe in The Unfinished Swan is the protagonist. And he goes to save the king, basically. Oh. And the king is uh, Milton from the... Oh, you know, yeah, I guess you're right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I was a little. One, I was wondering about that because I was like not sure exactly how the two tied together or if they did. But it's really, it's really neat to see them kind of tying their two pieces together here in this way. Yeah, and there's kind of a parent-child thing because I think the main character goes on to realize that the king is his father in the Unfinished mm -hmm. Swan. So there's this kind of parent-child issue that that kind of raises in terms of like the the themes and stuff, like. It's, it seems as though this person disappeared and without children, quite young. So I yeah, don't know. It's a, if you're, if you're really like going to try and mine seamless, this for yeah. lore, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, it's it's really like I, I loved the unfinished Swan, so seeing that again was great. And um, you know, it's nice to see them kind of referencing their earlier work. I hope that folks who check this game out and haven't played the unfinished Swan do that because the unfinished Swan is really really neat. Um, and the last one. Actually, technically not the last one because there's sort of a sort of like an ending sequence. But the um, last real one. But yeah. the last, yeah, the last one is Lewis, which is by far, in my opinion, the best one. Lewis's Agreed. story is worth the price of admission, a hundred percent. It's also the longest and probably the most involved one. Yeah, and Lewis is—you get to go into his uh, 
when I was talking about stacks on stacks of random things in the house, I mean, his, he, he lives on a boat parked on top of the house, which is great. And you walk <laughs> in and it's like psychedelic central. There's like legalize it posters up and all this kind of great stuff. And so you're kind of prepped for this like Lewis overdosed. That's not the story they tell. They tell a much better story, in my opinion, than that easy out. I mean, you get this letter from a psychiatrist and she's saying like, Basically, he got sober and then realized that his life sucked. He worked at the cannery. And then you start really methodically grabbing fish, cutting their heads off and throwing them, just doing the same motions over and over and again. And this is where I think doing it as a video game made so much sense because you're doing the same methodical actions over and over again, talking about how boring this life is. And then he makes this rich fantasy life. And you are so psyched to something besides pick up fish and you keep doing it that like Lewis's interior life is so interesting and so rich that, you know, this is one of the ones that people say like, why is this a video game? I point to Lewis's story. Perfect, perfect intersection of like gameplay and and theme and story. Uh, What's really clever about this. If you're playing this on the PlayStation, I'm sure this may be slightly different controls on, on PC, but if you're playing this on the PlayStation, your right stick is controlling Lewis chopping fish. And so you've got this extremely repetitive motion, reach up, grab a fish, move it to the right, and it goes under a kind of a guillotine that chops off the fish's head, push the fish onto a conveyor belt. And you have to be continually doing that as it lets you start exploring uh, Lewis's world of the mind. And it starts with that being very, very simple. You're literally just seeing like a little character, almost a stick figure walking around in a black and white stick figure world. And that world expands and becomes more and more uh, detailed as Lewis's sort of inner fantasy life begins to take over his mind. It goes from 2D to 3D. Like it just gets richer and richer and more complex. Yeah. And it eventually... Uh, eventually the the division of it, you know, it starts with just his little fantasy world being basically the upper left quarter of the screen. And as things get more detailed and interesting, it becomes colorful, it expands, suddenly it's taking up most of the screen. And eventually the whole screen is devoted to what Lewis is seeing in his mind's eye, but the fish are still arriving. So you've got this full animated, beautiful 3D scene of a king making a voyage, Right. But in front of that, every few seconds, a salmon flops onto the screen and you have to move his arm to get that salmon out of the way and chop its head off and send it on its way. And I really loved that bit because like it, it entirely through just that gameplay, you realize that like this is Lewis feeling like his what really matters is his inner life and this fantasy he has for himself and that these fish are literally just piling up and getting in the way so that he can't see his real you know real what really matters and so you're trying to slice these fish and get them out of the way all the while trying to control with your left thumb lewis's king character and trying to do both of those things at once becomes frustrating And that plays into the theme because Lewis is frustrated trying to live this life as a cannery worker when he has this deep fantasy world that he's living in that he wants to focus all of his attention on. Um, It's just a perfect, perfect intersection of this gameplay idea and the theme and story that it's trying to tell. This is such a perfect, like, it's so, it's so cool. 
It's the best part of the game. I think it's this. This is it's kind of the climax of the game too. They know that this is the best one. I think there's a reason why it's like the last one you do. Um, different ones moved uh, or, or felt maybe more harsh, like the kids dying and things like that. You're always going to have an emotional reaction to like you know a child dying, especially when you're the one playing it. But um, this is the one that like. I, I was hook, line, and sinker. They had me. I was in it all the way. And you're just, and and the ending is horrifying mm-hmm. um, when you realize what has actually happened, um, which yeah. is he put his head into the fish slicer. Um, it's just yeah. brutal, you know. But he sees it as being like executed on the guillotine. It's just it's perfect and, crowned, and terrible yeah, yeah, yeah crowned on the guillotine yeah yeah it's so perfect it, and terrible it's it's so um so many of these have something about them that you know you've never seen before but this one was like wow this is this is a cool idea that reminded me i guess the one thing that it sort of reminded me of was um brothers a tale of two sons which we've talked about <laughs> on this on this show before on this episode before, yeah. I guess we did talk about it earlier. Um, Brothers is a game where it tells part of its story through its controls, right? The the controls are very important to the way that the game unravels uh, or, or tells its story. And you're trying to do two things at once, once one, you know, with each stick, but that plays into kind of what the game is all about. And this too, like this is a, this is a, a, a little vignette where the controls are telling you something about the story in, in a really interesting way. Um, I just, I don't think I'd, apart from maybe that brothers, which is doing something very different. I don't think I'd ever seen anything like this before. And it's, it's, it's very, wow. I mean, it was really cool. I um, remember walking in, I walked into the kitchen for the first time. There's just stacks and stacks of those fish, cannery fish. Yeah. Mm. And I was like, why do they have so many fish? And they're making apple pie. And it's probably because, like, Lewis died the week before and the cannery, like, threw fish at them. I don't know. But there's just, like, piles of fish on the kitchen table of cannery shrimp. Like, yeah, canned fish. Canned cannery salmon. And I was just like, why they're making apple pies? What is going on here? It's that kind of stuff that I think, like, I don't know how much of this game I would notice on a second take because of that. Well, I guess, is that the last of our, of our, yeah. um, they, well, I would like to round things out with a, a, a little bit of a discussion of the ending with Edith and Edie, and also about the curse in general, really the resolution of the frame story. They had hyped it. They hyped that. They hyped up that last night. And then it was just like, no, don't taint my daughter. And that was it. But they hyped it like something real crazy happened. But it was uh, it was just the fight that everyone's expecting. And I, I kind of liked that it was a fight that should have felt inevitable and did by the end of the game. I wonder about this this curse, really, because there was no explanation of the origin of the curse that I was able to spot in the game. And so there's no like, uh, you know, old gypsy woman that, you know, they crossed on the street and who laid a curse on them or anything like that. It's just that this is a family who just seems to all die young. The curse of bad parenting. Ooh. 
Matt Parenting did take out at least one, all the two, kids, three, <laughs> four of the kids. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a that's a huge that's a huge piece to the story to me. The ultimate resolution is that I think I think what we have here is a story where the curse is just a like a, a family that's full of neglect and lives in this weird house in the middle of nowhere. Well, she kind of speculates towards the end and it's obvious that like most of the narration uh, by the end is, is like her writing, uh, writing a journal uh, about her family history to sort of pass these stories on to her son that is, she's pregnant with at the end. And at one point during that, that sort of last bit, she speculates that maybe the curse is the stories that maybe she should let these stories die with her. Um, that maybe, you know, by believing so hard in a family curse, they're bringing it into being themselves. Uh, and she, she, she kind of, thinks about not passing those stories on and then does it anyway. <laughs> um, well, I think you get, we get back to the name of the, of the, of the whole, the whole thing is like what remains of Edith Finch. And the, the only thing that remains is the story. I, I, I still, I'm, I'm not quite over the, the kind of themes that we get here with this curse because ultimately it's not a curse it's it's an explore the it's the theme of this whole story which is is death and it's looking at how we we all inevitably die you know and and so there's having these last everyone has some last moment like like what we have in these uh in these stories and like Edie you know this whole thing is about remembrance of the dead and so I think that's why she has to sh continue to share this story. Like it's the, the, the family is, a is fundamentally about like, that's the whole identity of the family is remembering the dead. It, I, 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 I like that. I like that reading of it, but I, I don't know. I, I do kind of think that ultimately at the end, you know, when, when all is said and done, I think it's still a little bit of a mishmash. You know, this game has a lot of strengths and um, it, it's got a, but it it doesn't feel to me like it has a strong through line on theme. You know, it's there. All the stories are about death, but that's not a theme. It's just a story element. You know, it, it's and I don't feel like this. Like I don't. I didn't come away from this whole piece with like. And here's what I think they were trying to say about death, or say about the you know about remembrance of the dead. It's just a bunch of story like so I, and I'm, I'm I'm dissing it here at the end of having said that I think it's a really, really great game. I think this is a game full of amazing, clever ideas. Each individual story has a theme. Uh, and so maybe its theme is like every death is different or that every person is different and their deaths are all yeah, I don't know. But I, it's not like something like Gone Home. Now I'm comparing it again to that where I came away from it with like a, a clear through line for the entire story and all of the characters within that story were part of a larger theme a larger a larger thing and this i i still at the end even though they're the final story tried to kind of wrap it up and put a bow on it i still kind of felt like this was just a bunch of really good bits put in a box and mixed around um each one kind of separate from the other. And I think that's kind of the the point that I was saying earlier too, is that like, I don't think it needs to have this uh, major theme, but I think it tries to, 
Yeah. Um, and that's where I got a little lost. Um, and, and I don't really know what Edie or um, Edith learned or if she learned anything. But they really want you to think she did or you, they really want you to think uh, some broad conclusions were made. It just makes me really sad that we spend the entire game playing as this person who is a you know 17-year-old pregnant girl who's exploring her house. And we get a lot of her feelings about other people and her feelings about the curse. But um, I think the character remains a cipher at the heart of the story, Edith. So at the end, when she presumably dies in childbirth, it's kind of assumed based... But all we have, I mean, all us who spent the entire game with her have of her is her past, of her family's history. Very little of hers. Like, Well, that's a similar actually- complaint I had about Gone Home, too. You know, we don't ever really learn anything about the player character. We're just there as a stand-in to, um, to explore the character of her sister. But it doesn't. The difference is at the end of that, this game is about what remains of Edith Finch, like about yeah. what remains of her story. And we literally have nothing about her except her past. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, it's just a something that kept me from really loving it. Like the end could have been more powerful. Had we gotten little sprinklings, even of any personality through the game, her death would have felt like something like a really like, oh, she died so young. So I was like, oh, that's a convenient way to end the game about death. Yeah. Yeah, this game has this game has almost universally positive reviews, um, especially you know on um, uh, on on some of the bigger r- review sites. Uh, but there's a lot of discussion about it in terms of this sort of new kind of review that I think we have to do in the wake of this change in the style or in the kind of content that we're getting in this in this medium, right? So. Um, we have to look at the story of these kinds of games in a way that we don't have to look at the story of like, you know, destiny, uh, or something like that where the, sorry, I'm sorry. You just said the word story of destiny and didn't laugh. And I, Oh, I I was laughing. I need to do that for you. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. Destiny, destiny has a rich universe. Okay. They just do a terrible job. Of telling you, <laughs> but um, but but basically, so didn't mean to to wake up the destiny voice, but uh, the uh, but yeah, no, a, a game like this, we have to review it in the in the way that we would a novel or a film or something, and so we're talking about these real structural problems to the story of this really great story experience, and so a quote that I liked from a review. Uh, at Electronic Gaming Monthly said about this, that it's a brilliant accomplishment. It is also a game that repeatedly fails to live up to its potential in serious, heartbreaking ways. Until now, I never realized it was possible to be both at the same time. So, I mean, oh my God, we're going to have to start giving game reviews that have nuance to them. I'm worried about this. This is a disturbing trend. It really is. Well, I think it's a really interesting point to make in that, like, this is a game that has some things, things in it that are really amazing ideas that are new, you know, really good stuff. Um, and absolutely none of that was for me. So, so the things that wowed, this game wowed me, but the story itself didn't really wow me. And it certainly didn't wow me in its, like, 
overall themes or like its ability to tie together these really cool ideas that it had. So it's really it's really kind of tough to put a button on a review like this or on on a conversation about this game because it's a it's clearly like breaking new ground in a genre or I guess almost medium, this sort of environmental storytelling or, you know, narrative storytelling based video game type of thing. It's doing new stuff that's really laudable and really interesting and, and I'd say even fun to play and experience. I 100% recommend trying this game out. Mm-hmm. I think it's, but, uh, yeah. I, I don't, I, I mean, rarely do we have a game that is, you know, perfect top to bottom and rarely do we right. see a game that, uh, tries as many things as this game does and doesn't fail most of the time. I mean, I think this game is a, is a real accomplishment. And I think that yeah. we're, we're really just harping on kind of the ending, uh, which is a, it's a disappointing thing when you don't stick the landing, it colors the whole game, right? Um, and so they didn't stick the landing and that, that sucks, but it doesn't take away from, the the you know how great the majority of the game is and it's not like they you know if i'm gonna use like a a gymnast it's not like they crash and burn or or land and like fall on the ending it's just not for a game that felt like there was so much theme and tone and stuff you really wanted like a like a like a a a well-considered and ending that made you set the controller down all of the stories together yeah you wanted it an unexpected way or something that gives you closure on things that you wish, you know, that, that you, that you didn't already kind of basically know the outline or the structure of like, I mean, we don't need her like to walk out and like burn the house down. Like, like we don't need that, but yeah, I, I, I feel a little bit like it's a tired thing already to continually go back to comparisons between like the current landscape of narrative video game. Yeah. Uh, the current landscape of narrative video games and, um, and like early film. But I, I think this, this really makes me think about like, you know, you, you, in 19, I don't know, 20 something, you might've walked out of a, a, a theater and said, wow, they were doing amazing incredible things with camera work and with editing that I've never seen before. That train was coming right at me. (laughs) The train came right at me, but maybe that story wasn't great. And we're right at that point now where we have to start kind of separating those like technical and artistic achievements from, I mean, there's multiple types of artistic achievements, artistic achievements in terms of like craft and, and, and ability to, put something new you know in your hands or on your screen and that sort of is this a great or even really good uh story altogether it's it's a complicated thing ultimately i think this game is absolutely worth playing and it's one of the best things in this genre that we as a show really tend to gravitate towards these sort of short narrative mostly first person experiences like this so if that's something that's your bag this is a this is likely to be an important game in that genre and absolutely is worth playing and at the end of the episode i wish we had uh, stuck this in before the spoiler break because i want everyone to know about it just in, uh, yeah. in case they have uh, they have time uh, maybe by the wonders of editing this will be possible but <laughs> uh nah too lazy go ahead all right so Everyone who's out there, um, a game that I'm really excited to play for our next episode of the short game is The Sexy Brutale, uh, 
Um, I don't want to tell you too much about the game before you uh, before you get started on it, uh, but it's it flew way under my radar. I'm glad that you brought it to my attention. Yeah, it's an it's an adventure game that combines kind of Groundhog Day um, with a hotel full of homicidal hosts that murder all the guests. And you're classic. <laughs> yes. So uh, so it's a the description sounded a little ghost trick to me. If that's a game that you've checked out. I've never played ghost trick, but uh, there are ghosts. Oh. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> that are part of the story here. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a pretty awesome game so far. I'm about halfway through it. Uh, I as soon as I got through the introductory piece of it, I uh, started badgering all of my co-hosts to play it. So, yeah. Uh, very excited. That's out on the PlayStation 4 and PC, I think, right? And, and also Xbox, Xbox One. One. That's right. And it's 20 bucks. If you want to kind of play along with us, that's one to check out. Uh, I just downloaded it. haven't started it yet, but that's likely to be our next episode unless something, uh, you know, unless something really dramatic happens and throws us off. Um, also, I not as that's... sexy as I anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> what a bummer. Yeah, actually, I, I I felt a little weird typing that into the search, trying to download it on my PS4, because I, I typed in S-E-X, and I was like, okay, first choice, the sexy brutal. Second is like... I typed in brutal. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it showed up right next to uh, 2069, a sex odyssey, which apparently is on the PlayStation store. So, yeah, uh, type in what you will, but it's on the store. If you um, play so- 2069, a sex odyssey, please write to the show. Let us know. Is I it good? It was a movie thank goodness but that oh, okay. I guess is something that they let onto their playstation store anyway so, so anyway um come back and join us next week for that episode uh and uh thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the short oh and one more thing thank you for bearing with us through the brief gap while we were uh celebrating laura's wedding uh congratulations again laura your wedding was awesome Woo. thank you and thank you listeners for joining us on this episode of the short game